Welcome to the Worship Theology Podcast. This is a space where we're bridging faith and ministry praxis and exploring the intersection of theology and worship. This episode was originally recorded at Mercer University during the annual meeting of the Society for Christian Scholarship in Music. My guest is Dr. Marcel Silva Stoyanagel. He currently serves as Assistant Professor of Church Music and Director of the Master of Sacred Music at Perkins School of Theology at SMU. Marcel has his PhD in church music from Baylor, and in addition to his scholarship in music and theology and performance studies, he's a very gifted church musician. He served in a variety of contexts, um, particularly in Brazil and the U.S. Our discussion today centers around performance and worship music. Is performance a dirty worship word? I hope you enjoy this important discussion as we draw out themes from Marcel's recent monograph, church music through the lens of performance. So Marcel, you've written on performance in church music. I think as I first interacted with your book, what I saw is just the title performance and church music coming together. And for me, in the context that I've led worship in Turkish Bible churches and evangelical Anglican churches and our Dort campus ministries, Rehearsals. I think if I sat in a rehearsal, I would be forgiven for saying the F word, but actually calling what we were doing is preparing for a performance. <laughs> I would be, yeah, kicked out of those contexts. Yeah. Like there's, there is this tension, particularly within free church, kind of evangelical, charismatic worship, Baptist worship, that it's an oxymoron. Church music and performance can't be equated. You see this in the literature. Um, Constance Cherry's Worship Architect. Cherry says it this way, worship and music should not focus on performance. Music is not entertainment. It does not exist to provide a venue for performers to impress a passive audience. All musicians, regardless of style, can fall into the performance mode. Bob Sorge, particularly among charismatics, has, has been important in, in undergraduate programs reading. Corporate worship, too, this is what Sorge says, too often resembles a spectator sport. Special music, he quotes, in many circles have come to mean the performance of a musical piece that did little more than titillate the ears of the audience. Even Barry Leash, who I found in, in this corpus of material the most sympathetic, spends two mm-hmm. chapters ends talking about performance in this way. To perform is to serve and minister. And what he ends up highlighting is that what we're doing is performing humble, concealed acts of ministry, such as visiting shut-ins, visiting the elderly. This is a book on musical worship and preparing undergraduates for for roles in worship leadership. So he's encouraging that performance should be about visiting shut-ins, visiting the elderly, and helping with the janitorial chores. Well, these are activities I encourage, like serving the poor is something I want to see my students and myself engaged with more and more. Where does that leave those who have spent hours of planning, decades of private lessons, engaged in the study of music at the highest level like, like you have been, and that are standing on an elevated platform with a million dollars worth of audio, video, and lighting pointed towards them? Why is performance such a bad word in these contexts? Well, um, Jeremy, thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for, for the interest in the research. I think it's, it is research born of trauma, a part of which <laughs> you've described in, in these excerpts from, from the literature, right? Uh, and any of you who have kind of grown in church within the context of the worship wars know and feel a part of that trauma. I think it's also not a trauma that is uh, exclusive to you know, contemporary worship, 
because you can have the same kind of negotiations and contestations around, for example, organ music. Or, you know, the organist has just performed, they just wanted to play that, that prelude uh, while we're wasting our time. Uh, it's a bad word. It's a, it, it's, a, it's a word that has been, and this is my explanation for it, uh, increasingly weaponized to support particular perspectives mm. on uh, or ideal, ideological stances about, about music in the church and what we should or should not play, or uh, about the sincerity, authenticity, integrity of the people engaged in the planning and the, and the I'm going to say it, performance of that music, right? Uh, so that's what, I, that's what I mean when I say this is, this is born out of trauma. Uh, the second point, I think, is you know, as I tried myself in my, in, my, in my ministry years to negotiate or almost make excuses for the fact that, you know, we did rehearse for this and you are watching what we're doing and you're assessing it and you will send me that email after church, right? Um, <laughs> if they that, liked it or yeah, they didn't like yeah. it, yeah. And then you start dealing with ethnomusicology and, for example, Thomas Torino's idea of, you know, presentational music and participatory music and the language that get used to, to describe the configuration. And then you throw in, you know, um, sacramental expectations, ecclesiological expectations uh, about what we're doing in church and what is efficacious in the sense of what, you know, sacramentally or liturgically works, then it, it becomes hugely convoluted and problematic. And... Um, there was a point where I, you know, I, I ran against performance studies, which is a discipline that theorizes, conceptualizes, and systematizes the phenomenon of performance in, in human activity. I was like, well, the term is defined. Um, can it be defined in relation to these troubled waters of church music and the conversations uh, therein? Uh, would that be helpful? Uh, would that remove some of the, an the anxiety? Uh, would that remove some of the kind of vitriolic, aggressive language uh, in a way that would redeem the term uh, so that we can use it when we talk about church music? So I think that's you know, my initial motivation. I mean, it, you, you have a, definitely an academic contribution to a new area of knowledge, like bringing these together, but what about the impact on praxis? Is there a desire, you talked about troubled waters, yep. is there a desire to either learn to walk on those troubled waters or to surf those troubled yep. waters? Yeah. You're a church musician in addition yeah. to a scholar, like what, what is the impact or your hope the impact of this area of knowledge that you're, you're putting out there? I think it's, it's, um, it's part of a, of a larger body of work in church music studies, in liturgical studies, in theology and musicology that is uh, providing mashups, mashups of disciplinary perspectives um, to help uh, resolve certain tensions. Um, there's a, a story that I tell, you know, I was in undergrad studying, conducting, and I had spent the entire week, uh, you know, doing levades and bateres, and, you know, it's like queuing people in. I would walk on the street. That's what I was, you know, beating patterns. And for me, in, by, you know, at that time in my life, my performance persona for rock and roll, for Brazilian jazz, for concert music, for choirs, and or they were different, they were siloed, right? And I, I didn't use the rep, the bodily rep, the leadership uh, repertoire that I had from one silo to the next. Uh, and I was kind of building these personas up independently until that week when I had to lead contemporary worship, the evening service at my Lutheran church in Brazil. And because I had spent the entire week doing this, when the chorus came in, I just, I cued the congregation a very classic, you know, orchestral <laughs> cue. 
and they just, they responded. And the walls of the, sil the silos came down. So I think that this whole thing for me and for many church musicians, they know, we know, in experience, the joy when uh, practice and the way we think about what we do when they converge, yeah. right? Uh, the problem with the, 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 the P word is that a lot of times it splits, it divides, right? Again, it calls into question certain, um, uh, certain phenomenological dynamics of what we're doing. But uh, I think, I, I said remove anxiety. I mean, if we can talk about performance by owning what it is, maybe it would be helpful to define it from the performance yeah. studies perspective, yeah. right? What so, is performance? What is performance? Uh, from the old French, parfonie. It's uh, basically Richard Schechner. It's kind of the, the, the Don Corleone of performance studies, if you will, <laughs> the godfather. He says, uh, performance is twice behaved behavior. It's restored behavior. It's something that you've done repeatedly or that you rehearse to do. Uh, and the fact that you've rehearsed to do it or that you're restoring that behavior does not make it less valid. In fact, it makes it more significant, which makes sense from the liturgical studies perspective, from the ritual studies pr perspective. You know, you, you rehearse for things that are important to you, right? So performing is being and doing at the same time. And when you read, for example, Stanislavski, Grotowski, other uh, theoreticians of theater, uh, you know, they'll say that the good character is embodied into the actor. Um, th and that's what happens with musicians as well, right? You, you, you train to make it look simple, yeah. even if it's really, really complicated, uh, just as liturgists train uh, so that the oran's position can look natural, even if it's extremely awkward, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, performance in that sense is, uh, from the performance studies perspective, in church we're all performing. The, the, the usher, the sound technician, the, the pastor, uh, the, the people in the pews, you know, you, you go to church, you put on your Sunday best, um, and you participate in this thing that we're doing together. And it's not something that the people on stage do. It's something that it, it's, it's uh, um, performatively significant for everyone who is participating. So it's not exclusive to the music. It's not exclusive to the platform. It's not exclusive to any form of worship. Mm. So that kind of bypasses all the trauma discourse. I think for me, you're, you're helping disrupt a division between, again, in evangelical, low church, Pentecostal settings, the difference between the espoused theology of worship, which is it's all about the heart of worship, heartfelt sincerity, and then the, the operant theology, which is let's rehearse 20 hours this week for this new album that we're going to put out that's, that's going to be expressed. And again, uh, we want it to be at, a, at the highest highest level, and I think your use of this term is helping bridge those divides that are within, within those churches. And I, I, I really, as I've been reflecting a, a paper previously on kind of the evangelical theologies of worship, one of these is this idea of, of taking and linking various biblical theologies of worship with heartfelt sincerity. So Carrie Job says this in Charisma Magazine, I love the story of Mary and Martha because it perfectly <laughs> captures God's pure love. Martha worked so hard to get every little detail right for Jesus. I think that whether she realized it or not, she was trying to impress him and earn his love. She thought he cared about how perfect, clean, and comfortable his visits to her home would be. She didn't realize that his love was so pure that the only thing he wanted was to spend time with her and her sister. Because Martha thought his love was impure, her response of love back to him was impure. It was all about performance. Boom. Mary, on the other hand, understood his deep, pure love for her, 
her loving response of sitting at the feet of Jesus, spending time with him, it all came from a heart that grasped his pure love for her. Paul Beloge, similar sentiments, comments that the difference between worship and performance is simply the posture of heart. In these, these contexts, worship's performative nature is de-emphasized. Instead, there's a quest for authenticity, a quest for sincerity. John Whitfleet at another conference, you know, highlighted this, talking about sincerity uh, around worship practices. He says it this way, the term suggests both a correspondence between the interior experience and external action, as well as correspondence between what is expressed in worship and what is lived and believed all week. It's, there's a desire for this heartfelt sincerity for those connected to this free church worship, but it, and it doesn't seem to be dissipating. In fact, Neil Hudson, when he looks at the British worship context, calls this current um, context with movements like David's Tent in the UK as the quest for authenticity, stating a common feature is an ongoing desire to engage in authentic worship. Now, I don't think what you're saying about performance is, is, is disagreeing with those undercurrents, but also, I'd love to see how, yeah, your comments around performatives of expression and sincerity helps kind of highlight these dynamics or these, yeah. these meanings while bringing in yeah. a term that's disrupting. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, that weaponized use of the P word tries to sever some of these connections, right? And, and you can use the term sincerity or authenticity or integrity or, or excellence uh, that, you know, that weaponized uh, use of performance is almost like a, a sword that severs the connection between the underlying intention and the expression, the visible, tangible expression of that intention. Whereas from the, per the performance perspective, um, we are what and whom we perform. So, you know, the, the Jeremy that interacts in, in, with the boss is not the same Jeremy that interacts with, with the wife and the kids, right? You haven't met my boss. He's a, <laughs> he's a really good guy. Um, you know, and in a sense, our own perception yeah. of who we are is, um, is built within the ecology of relationships that we have and develop, right? That's the, the, the performance studies perspective. Uh, so in that sense, the question might be diff a completely different one, yeah. is how do I perform with integrity? Uh, how do I do this in a way that I'm well prepared and ready for whatever spontaneous uh, direction we decide to go in? Um, and, and by removing that, an that anxiety and kind of uh, owning performance for what it phenomenologically is, in my opinion, of course, um, I think we create freedom for expression. And that's a huge practical difference, right? If you're a church musician and you're kind of heavy laden with the, you're second guessing your own intentions about the work that you're doing and the rehearsal that goes into it and how people are perceiving the work that you, you know, uh, suddenly that kind of, it doesn't disappear, but it, 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 it's a completely different route to the same phenomenon, which is the phenomenon of worship. Yeah. You know, in, in, my, in my history, when I was able to bring in, you know, uh, the moves from the 1 a.m. pub gig some of them, uh, <laughs> and apply them to the contemporary skinny jeans, you know, craft beer, bearded worship leader persona. It was great. With a deep Elm hat. Yeah, on. with a deep Elm hat. It was, it, was, it was awesome because now um, I didn't need to second guess much of, of what was going on. I could um, try it. And because worship, in a sense, is a rehearsal that you get to try again next week if they don't fire you, um, 
you could try again and again and again, right? So uh, that the, the, the stance of performance creates other useful analogies and metaphors. Rehearsal is one of them. It's like, in fact, and, and if you go to the liturgy, liturgical studies uh, bibliography, there's, there's, there, that analogy of worship as rehearsal is, is always there. So we try, we do this again, we do this again, we repeat. So in that sense, performance becomes almost like a, um, a stage upon which uh, spiritual flourishing or theological development, theologizing to use a, a, a word that, that I also like, uh, is great. It's a garden, yeah. right? It's not, it's not a labyrinth. Yeah. It's where, it, I, this isn't in my notes, but it's in, it's where there's some overlap with new thoughts in worship and formation, new to my community, not new to more liturgical communities. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Jamie Smith talking about worship being the gymnasium of the heart or the place where we practice what we we believe and that helps yeah. form belief helps form mm -hmm. identity there's there's one more kind of undercurrent that i think in at least in my tradition and a lot of the 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 places students are coming from that i work with is kind of the sacred secular divide that performance is what we do in the pub or in the jazz club or in the performing hall mm -hmm. And worship is what we do in the sacred spaces, particularly worship music. Jeremy Riddle, in a, a new book that actually, yeah, some of my students were, were really encouraged by, he, he says it this way, worship leaders are not performing artists, and nights of worship are not concerts. And yet, in this regard, we continue to intentionally and unintentionally marry what is sacred with what is common. This should not be. Worship is holy. It can't coincide with a night of entertainment on behalf of people. That's an unholy coalition as is marrying a worship leader with our definition of performing artists. Now, he's making this clear distinction between the sacred and the mundane, yet I've been led and sung worship with his incredible vocal texture, mm -hmm. his mm -hmm. gorgeous sound, his hair that he can swoop back really well. Yeah, I can't do I that. I mean, yeah. yeah, like, I, I guess, again, I, I, I uh, in some sense understand the, the rhetoric, the division he's taking to encourage people to be sure what they're doing is really about the worship of the triune God. But on the other sense, like, you're a performing artist. Yeah. You're being paid to sing these songs in front of others. And it's, yeah. you and your band are doing a really good job of doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, is that... Is that tension something that with your studies can help, yeah, settle the waters or at least yeah. surf the waters? Well, I think it's safe to say that guilt has been a huge part of the Protestant repertoire ever since, ever <laughs> since forever, right? I mean, it, yeah. it's part of what we do. Yeah. Um, so I think I'm going to give a Lutheran response to that. And because this is not a, a, a podcast on sacramental theology, uh, we're not going to get into the, you know, the the nuts and bolts of, of what that would entail. But uh, from the Lutheran perspective, you know, as a Lutheran who, who is a scholar, uh, people talk about Luther's theology of music, mm -hmm. right? And I argue that Luther doesn't really have a theology of music. Luther has a theology of creation. Uh, and within that creation, uh, you know, God is good, creation is good, music is good, let's make some music. Uh, not all my... Protestant brethren, sisters, and people would agree, but I, I do think that from the Lutheran perspective, it's that idea that we are here, there is a good thing that we do, which is music, let's do the music, yeah. right? 
So um, I'm not saying that everything is adequate for every context, yeah. right? And part of what good performance entails in that, that vein of to be and to do um, at the same time is being able to listen yeah. and understand and engage with, with the context in, with, in which you are, but it's also um, owning the resources that, that are available uh, for, you, for you to do that, yeah. right? So uh, particularly, I don't think the sacred-secular divide is helpful pretty much anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and I think that for most of what we do in church, getting rid of that guilt around the, the, the office itself, or the, the actual thing that we do, both on stage and backstage and in the planning, that's right now, I think, more useful than um, finger pointing, yeah. which is what we've done for the past 30 years. I mean, that's, that's, I'm tired. No, I appreciate right. that theologizing. Anytime, I, yeah, I'm actually contractually obligated by Dort University to bring up Abraham Kuyper. Anytime <laughs> we're theo theologizing, particularly around sacred secular, and this is Kuyper's quote that resonates in so many traditions, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, all is his. And you're, you're bringing in, again, a fuller view of what Christian worship music can look like in a context. How, how does this performance studies, drawn into the study of congregational music, enhance the meaning and practice of, of Christian worship? Well, I would... Or what would you hope? Oh, yeah. What would your hope be? Well, I would get rid of the Christian music thing yeah, I would just get rid of it. Um, I don't think it's helpful. Just like the sacred secular divide isn't helpful. Again, I'm not saying you can do anything anywhere, anytime. Uh, but what I am saying is that a lot of times the labels actually come before the reps, and the the, the experimentation again just kind of dilutes into the ether because we're afraid of that angry email that I mentioned earlier, right? Um, when I was at Redeemer Lutheran Hidentor uh, in in South Brazil, I was there for a long time. Uh, I'll just give a couple of examples. Yeah, once we please. owned, once we owned the possibility of performance on an ongoing basis, not to the congregation but with the congregation. Uh, for example, uh, one weekend we had a seminar on Bach's Saint John Passion. For the for the next month, the the big deal for our musicians, both amateur and professionals, was to see who could weave in more themes and retrograde, retrograde inverted counterpoints from <laughs> from Saint John's into whatever you know, Chris Tomlin tune we were doing that week. And it was great. Or uh, how could we, we started using, uh, you know, free atonal music for confession, improvised. Uh, so I think there is something about creating an environment of flourishing, again, and, and in that sense, I, I do point to the work of my colleague, Nate Myrick, uh, who's written on, on the ethics of that, um, by his book. Uh, to, to, again, to, to you know, kind of defuse some of these ominous threats to, to what we do and, and try to tamper with stuff. Mm -hmm. One of the words that I use technically in the book and I conceptually define it is messiness. I say that church music, its practice and the thought around it is messy. And we should embrace that uh, because no tradition is pure. Uh, no tradition is, has developed purely and it will continue to be messy in the sense that they will intermingle increasingly um, as we move forward. So what, what does that messiness look like in your, own, in your own context right now as you plan and lead corporate worship? 
I do a lot of work with um, trilingual, multilingual worship, diversity in worship. Uh, and that messiness has expressed itself, for example, in the idea that we don't have to translate everything to English. And that part of the value of performing multilingual worship is not understanding exactly the lyrics of every single thing you sing. Uh, and kind of crawling into the, this is creepy, but <laughs> crawling into the performative skin of the other is an act of um, active hospitality. So I'm gonna sing in your language and you know I'm gonna butcher it and you know I'm uncomfortable, you're awkward, I'm awkward, it's a holy awkwardness, great. So that's just one example of, um, of how the performance perspective can open up uh, possibilities for, uh, for church musicians who are trying to lead their congregations into, in, into some kind of flourishing with music. That's, yeah, yeah, kind of connecting again with Nate's work a little bit, but what, what's, what have you seen that do? As you've, if you've pressed into that messiness, either within yourself or within those that are coming from different experiences, different cultures, different backgrounds. I think it's created beautiful soundtracks that would have not otherwise existed. Mm. Um, and by removing some of the anxiety uh, and policing around, around the P word in these contexts, it's created uh, better relationships. I think yeah. it's created better relationships. And that in turn, you know, just changes worship. Yeah. I'm not saying it happen it works every time or happens every time, but it's more, you know, to use Eugene Peterson's expression, it was a long obedience in the same direction. So I think that's the commitment here. We've got just a couple more minutes. And I this is as I as I reflected on on your book, one of the areas that I felt yeah, you didn't connect with and again, you're using performance studies, but you're a theologian in a the theology faculty. Is God a performer? in Christian worship and in Christian worship music? Yeah, that's my answer. <laughs> that's it. What, anything else I say, someone will write me an angry email, right? But yeah, I mean, the, God's dancing the dance along with us. Yeah, and in, in many ways, Thomas Torrance, like participating yeah. in, yeah. through the Spirit and the Incarnate Son's yeah. communion with the yeah. Father. Yeah. I, I know, and again, particularly in the worship arts literature, it's all about God as the audience. So mm. reappropriating Kierkegaard, um, and yeah, and I can remember Ron Canoli at a co conference saying, like, you're not the audience, God's, God's the audience. Or again, Barry Leash spends a lot of time mm. in, in, in his textbook. But the reality is, is, yeah, within Christian worship, within the great tradition of, of understanding Christian worship, God's intimately involved. Yeah. And, you know, for example, this work on performance has led to work on theology uh, and church music as improvisation, right? And there's, again, I'm not the only one doing this. Uh, and, and, and it's not just jazz. It's in the organ rep. It's right, the, the idea that um, we are responding, we are listening, and we're creating together. I've got just, yeah, a couple of questions from, from some of our, our friends and guests. Um, one of these is, to what do you think Cherry, on one hand, and Sorge, on the other, are responding is performance their actual target or a theological conviction around a narrow view of participation emerging from different theological and liturgical traditions? I think they're, they're trying to point to a better tomorrow, uh, but there's a lot of misconception around what the word performance actually means or how it can be defined. And one of the things I see in the book is that when people, both scholars and practitioners and you know, deacons in church board meetings talk about performance, they're talking past each other because the term has not been defined, it's been weaponized before it's been defined, and therefore it becomes irrelevant, um, right? 
So uh, taking a step back and actually asking, you know, what do we mean by what we say uh, and what, what are we trying to share in? And then going in that direction, I think, is a more hospitable and communal ethics of, of church music. Yeah. One more. In, in my denominational tradition, I hear an argument that seems to be growing in popularity that says the congregation is the NT choir, assume New Testament choir, therefore we need no special performance music from a special group. So kind of, uh, yeah, a little bit of, I think it was Sorge who was talking about that too, like we don't want special music anymore. Like what would you say to someone making that argument? I would say that there's room, and this is the last the last sentence in my book is that there's room on the stage for other scholars to perform. Um, in the world of church music, I think there's room for, for many types of religious performance. And some of them will be the congregation, which has a fundamental voice in Christian worship. Uh, some of them will be by a dedicated group of people who were interested in spending five or 10 or 15 hours, you know, pursuing a goal that will contribute to the conversation um, in a unique way with a unique flavor. Yeah. yeah. And again, just thinking liturgically, that, that space, even within my low church worship leading context, sometimes is a prelude or is a response to the, the, the message, a response to the sermon that is able to share things that maybe that congregation or that tradition isn't ready to sing. So mm. songs of lament, songs of doubt. Yeah. Um, some of our students are writing those in their own kind of performance music. Sorry, I'm using yeah, the, yeah. the thing you're disrupting, but using that for their, their music that they'd play in the coffee shop or the pub, but we're tr working to draw that in because those, those words of doubt or words of pain or lament resonate one with the biblical story with the mm -hmm. Psalms yeah. in particular, but also resonate with the, the human yeah. experience. Yeah, which is messy. Yeah. Right? So let's make music that reflects that messiness, I think. Yeah. Marcel, what a delight. Thanks Thank for hanging Thank out you, and Jeremy. being up Appreciate here tonight. It. It's great. Thanks for listening to the Worship Theology Podcast and a special thanks to the Calvin Institute for Christian Worship and their support of this episode.